American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. January 22nd from 1 to 3 p.m., me, our team of organizers, which was around 30 folks that just organized and volunteered, and another around like 400 people showed in front of Bank of America to protest this expansion onto our sacred land strikes me in a lot of the work that I do now because of the fact that it's an active erasure, you know, like it's an active erasure that when you go to a bookstore, you don't see native playwrights on the shelves, you see a bunch of Shakespeare. And that's a choice. That's a choice that, you know, this, the government of this country has made to center some stories and to eliminate others that are our stories were, you know, illegal for, for periods of time. And that these other stories, stories that aren't from here, like Shakespeare are required in our curriculum is a real, is a real problem. Today on American Indian Airwaves, we'll hear from one of the main organizers of this past week's action regarding Enbridge's attempt to expand its oil operations within the traditional territories of the Konkawa Kadle Nation peoples. And in the second segment of today's program, we'll hear from well-known indigenous playwright, director, author, and scholar, Madeline Sayet, as part of our ongoing series, Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone fool in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blows to the Bahu drum. Today on American Indian Airwaves, we go to the heart of the Kurukawa Kadle Nation in Corpus Christi, Texas, as we speak with one of the main organizers of this past January 22nd action in front of Bank of America in Austin, Texas. Bank of America is one of the corporate underwriters to the Enbridge Oil Company's major project to build a pier in oil export terminal over the eastern portion of a Karankawa village site off Corpus Crispy Bay in Ingleside, Texas. The pier will destroy Karankawa forms of cultural patrimony, sacred items, and the environmentally rich marshlands. In addition, there are plans to build a seawall pipeline that will transport tar sands from Houston, Texas to the Corpus Crispy Pier for export. The Enbridge Company has a long and continuous history of pipeline operations that are points of struggle for various Native American nations, including the recent treaty violations and struggles over the Enbridge 3 pipeline in Superior, Wisconsin area, and the other point of struggle with Enbridge Energy Corporation is its illegal operations of the aging Line 5 pipeline in the Straits of Mackinac in Upper Michigan. 
Today on American Indian Airwaves, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Kiara Enriquez, one of the principal organizers of this past January 22nd action in front of the Bank of America office. And now, Kiara Enriquez from the Karankawa Kadli Nation on protecting the Karankawa village off Corpus Crispy Bay in Ingleside, Texas. So, um, really, me and my people, the Karankawa Kadla, we had been dealing with Enbridge's proposed expansion for quite a while um, before most people knew about it, especially my sister. She's been fighting this for years and years and years. Before Enbridge brought bought this um, oil export terminal, it belonged to Moda Oil Export Terminal. And so even when it was Moda, she was fighting that fight. And we'd been doing it for so long, and I'd been posting about it on my, really, my personal Instagram page. And it gained enough traction, slowly but surely, where people started reaching out to my sister, and she was having, like, Zoom calls with them to do some vetting, you know, make sure that these people who are reaching out are people who are for the cause. And it kept happening. So eventually she um, added me onto the calls, and it was just one of those calls where I asked her, um, well, what is it that you think we should do? And she said, I don't know, like, we just need, like, an action, something that, you know, will just push this issue further into people's line of sight. And I was like, oh, so, like, like a protest. And she was like, yes. And so um, that was, let's see, uh, that might have been sometime in November, maybe early November. And so early November, we started um, brainstorming what would be a good time. We picked January for a couple reasons. One, because it was in the start of the new year, uh, 2022, which would also be the year that um, Enbridge would be allowed to kind of restate its case and potentially resume drilling, specifically in August 2022. So 2022 was a good year for us to start, but it also gave us a couple months' time to prepare because I'm a big planner, and since I had taken on this responsibility of organizing it, I did want a lot of time to gather as many folks as I could and so that we wouldn't feel rushed and we could um, elevate and spread our posts for as long as we could. So we did take those months of planning. We're working <laughs> as long as we could, and then the date came, January 22nd from 1 to 3 p.m., me our team of organizers, which was around 30 folks that just out of the kindness of their hearts that knew about our struggle, organized and volunteered. And another around like 400 people showed in front of Bank of America to protest this ex expansion onto our sacred uh, land. And we ended up uh, posting up in front of the Bank of America all the way uh, covering the block in its entirety um, on the sidewalk because we wanted to stay on public property. Uh, towards the middle of our protest, so at around like 1.40-something to 2.30-something, we took to the crosswalks in between stoplights just to get that more visibility and posted up on some other intersections and quarter corners in the area. We had some chance and we stood along the streets and we were there for the full two hours 
and we had tons of visibility. We printed out more than 300 flyers, and all of those flyers were taken by passing cars, and it was, I consider, a wonderful success. Nobody there, like, didn't know what they were there for. It was a really awesome beacon of hope for us. And now, what role does Bank of America play in Enbridge's uh, project for this terminal expansion? Bank of America is just one of um, some. I'm, I can like think of three other banks that help fund Enbridge. Uh, specifically, they are one of the funders behind the Pipeline Three. Um, just Pipeline Three. And so since there weren't any direct Enbridge facilities, there wasn't like an Enbridge headquarters in Austin, we figured that the closest we would be able to get that would still be directly related to our fight would be to post up in front of the Bank of America. Mm. And it also gave us a good opportunity to convince people to divest and just um, inform them on what Bank of America is doing with their money. With the action this past January 22nd, uh, was there any issues, say, with the uh, surveillance, uh, police state or state surveillance or, or any other during instances the to during the call to action? Not that I could notice. Um, our organizational team had so many of them really, really aware and proactive about all the security measures we could take. Mm. For example, there was somebody there that was handing out Faraday fabric to protect our cellular devices. Mm. There was somebody there that made sure that all the outreach that we did was encrypted and that it was encrypted back to back. But day of, there was not a police presence. We did notice that on the lot across from us, some security folks from um, the building across were kind of looking and scouting around, but no direct action from uh, police or state. And for our listeners, give us a sense of who the Karankra Kadla people are and what the implications are for the people and the land, the culture, if this Enbridge terminal expansion occurs. So... We, the Karankawa Katla, we're descendants of the Karankawa people. The Karankawa are our ancestors, and we have been from the coast of the land we now call Texas for at least the last 2,000 years. That territory spans from South Padre Island to Corpus, and then all the way up to Houston, And that's just our traditional territory. Now, you know, we're like all over the place, all across the land we now call America. And since our traditional homeland is all along the coast, really the whole coast is incredibly sacred. But Mm -hmm. specifically for this proposed Enbridge expansion, they're going to be building on a Karankawa settlement. This settlement has thousands and thousands of thousands of you know, they'd call it ancient artifacts, but to us, they're just, they're sacred. They're arrowheads, pottery, tools, seashells, jewelry that our ancestors use and that have been there for at least the last 2,000 years. Mm. This is also a piece of land where some people in the tribe, they go out there and they pray and they hold ceremony. Mm. For me, though, why this has been so impactful, I'm sure it's also the reason why this is so important for the rest of us, is this is a direct, tangible piece of history where we can just 
I can touch what my ancestors touch. It's still there. Mm. And I know so many other indigenous folks and just outside of indigenous folks, I know so many other people who just don't have that. And we mm. do. And we've been having it for forever. And I refuse to stand by and let them take it away, especially for our future generations. Without exaggeration, these pottery fragments, they still have the designs that my ancestors put in them, and that is so special. And it isn't just ancient history. It's, it's so sacred, and it needs to be protected. I don't want to deny my children the opportunity to be like, yes, we were here, we were still here, and here is the proof. Mm. We have proof that we were here. Nobody can deny it. Our presence is all along that land. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they want to take it away. There's, there's this erasure of indigenous history. It's just unimportant. And I want to be part of the cause that protects indigenous history because it's not just indigenous history. It's worldwide history. The people who are from the land need to be able to have a space where they can preserve their history. And I want indigenous history to be just as protected as American so-called history. It's so often uh, indigenous peoples are, you know, we're always at the front lines in protecting our our sacred sites and traditional lands. And certainly the non-renewable resource extractive industries just in general uh, have such a, a violent entrenched placement, uh, intergenerational placement in indigenous people's lands. And I was wondering what the with the struggle to prevent this uh, terminal expansion in relationship to land and the traditional cultural practices of the people, what kind of uh, coalition have you been able to develop and cultivate along with other community members? Well, um, since the beginning, we've been working with the indigenous people of the Coastal Bend. Uh, they're a group of indigenous folks that are uh, water protectors and land defenders. Mm -hmm. There's also, and um, my sister would know more about this than I do, but there's also a group of like archaeologists that are also from that area, born and raised, that also want to protect that piece of land. Mm -hmm. So we have those two groups there that are kind of like official. And as our story, as our struggle has been reaching more audiences, I've been finding that it's a lot of the younger generations, the youth that are um, standing with us. It's also environmental activists. It's um, indigenous uh, rights activists. It's people who want to protect the earth and their stewards mm. who are really gathering together. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with one of the principal organizers from the Karankawa Codlate Nation, Kiara Enriquez, regarding Enbridge, attempt to build a pier in oil export terminal over a portion of the Karankawa village site off Corpus Crispy Bay in Ingleside, Texas. And now back to the interview. And what other course of action um, has taken place? So my understanding, there is a, a legal court case that's been filed. And I was wondering if maybe you could uh, tell our listeners uh, about the court case and where we are with this court case and, and uh, what's the next step. Yeah, so there is a legal action on the indigenous people of the Coastal Bend, and uh, which includes some Karankwa Katla members, have sued the Army Corps of Engineers that approved uh, this expansion to go through. 
We don't believe that they've done all their paperwork. You know, they haven't dotted their I's and crossed their T's. They're in um, violation of several water protection laws or um, water protection, like something. There's like a specific verbiage that I'm missing there. Um, what I've last heard is that at any moment it could be taken uh, to court and that's about it. So at any moment, we could present and they could make a decision. And so the more people that we have behind us, the more visibility we'll be able to get to kind of push our way towards protecting that land. Because really, all that we really have going for us is that they're in viola violation of several Water Protection Acts. That's it, mm -hmm. Water Protection Acts but less so that they would be destroying and taking away access to our sacred land. And where, what's the next step with the court case now? Because my understanding that there is a temporary stay on the, ex, uh, yes. the expansion until August of 2022? Mm -hmm. uh, yep, there's a temporary stop until August 2022. And so... My sister was saying, okay, that's great, that's a wonderful victory, mm -hmm. but then what? But right. then after August, like, we're, are we going to have to keep fighting? Mm -hmm. And that's our intention, is to keep fighting. And then as I said, at any day now, we could be called up, and it could be um, in the courts, us presenting our case. Right. That's the next step, is if we were able to just really get our lawyers to present these violations of the Water Act that they're mm -hmm. in violation of, and hopefully that's enough to get them to stop maybe a little bit longer, our worry is that they can fix that. Mm -hmm. They can fix whatever it is they violated, and then they can build. And then <laughs> our artifacts are going to be taken away from us. So the next step, as, <laughs> as hard as it is, is just getting people to also understand that ecological restoration of the land isn't going to be complete without restoration of indigenous people and their history. Those two things go hand in hand. For our listeners, and this kind of comes back to uh, my earlier question for uh, asking you to share a little bit about who the people are, is, uh, and I know this is, is hard, always hard to talk about for indigenous peoples because some indigenous nations don't have a land base, but it's their community members and citizens still reside within their traditional homelands. Uh, some uh, are federally recognized and have a land base um, uh, in which they can occupy. And so is there, maybe you could touch on that for a little bit in terms of the people and, and the land. And then how does that add to this struggle in trying yeah. to prevent right, Enbridge, uh, uh, the terminal expansion. Yeah, so there's so much uh, history that goes into just indigenous groups, and each indigenous group has such a different history and such different culture. Okay. For my ancestors, uh, we, shortly after the um, annexation of Texas, mm -hmm. basically our, like, indigenous standing was taken from us, when they revoked our existence, so like they claimed that we were extinct. Mm -hmm. So after they declared us extinct, which wasn't the case, some of my ancestors survived battles, wars, a systematic genocide that befell many, many other indigenous groups all across Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. But since my people survived, um, 
mostly the women, sadly enough, they kind of assimilated into Spanish cultures. They were um, people that helped in the homes, people that helped with birds, people that helped with medicine. And slowly we kept our culture, our spirituality, parts of our language alive. And so, yeah, we are without federal or state recognition. Mm -hmm. We do, most of us, still live in the same territories that we've always lived. My family, we've come from Corpus Christi since forever and ever, just like our ancestors. They've always been on that land since mm. forever and ever. And since we don't have that state or federal recognition, uh, you know, many people that are against our fight to preserve the land or even just to protect the water mm. tell us that we don't have a right to say that it is our land or that we have a right to really take this fight um, <laughs> forward. I really disagree though with this whole like where is your paperwork where is right. your documentation who told you that yeah you are indigenous to this land right. and my <laughs> people have just never believed that I am personally of the belief that I don't want anybody to tell me who I am or who I have been it is something that I'm very lucky I have been raised knowing that I am Karankua Kadla and that my ancestors were Karankua. And so it's incredibly frustrating that I have to somehow prove to people outside of this deep connection I have with the land that this land should be protected, which is why we're leaning so hard on the Water Protection Acts that Enbridge is violating. Mm. And um, where are folks planning to, to go from here in terms of uh, this executing the next strategy? And then uh, what can people do to help that are listening? So we are planning a, another call to action in Corpus sometime in April. That's going to be the next direct call to action where people can show up and show their numbers and try to prevent this from happening. Outside of that, what people can do, as always, is share our posts. And I'm a big advocate in just educating themselves uh, to the proper history of what's happened to the indigenous peoples of this land. And especially if these people are from Texas, educating themselves the history of Texas and what Texas had done to its indigenous populace, namely stripping indigenous peoples of their rights, of their sovereignty, and turning it into this whole, um, uh, what do they call them? Like rangers against the Indians. Mm. And then um, is there website, any website or Facebook information that you can provide listeners that they can access if they want more information? Yeah, so um, we have the Stop and Bridge website that um, is ran by some folks from the uh, indigenous peoples of the Coastal Bend. Mm -hmm. We also have Stop and Bridge, I believe it's Austin TX for uh, call to actions that take place in Austin. Then we have two Instagram pages, my personal one and the Indigenous People 361 on Instagram, um, I believe. I know that my Instagram page is Karankua Chicharra, Karankua being our tribe, and then Chicharra being a nickname that I was called growing up. 
And is there anything else you want to share with listeners about the people and uh, the work that you community members and allies are doing? No, um, really, the only thing I could think of is what I was sharing during our protest on the 22nd, which is just at a foundational level, I want to also tell people that the Karankawa are not extinct. We are trying to correct that myth. It's something that's perpetuated to really suppress us and make our battle a lot harder. If you look up the Karankawa, there are still a lot of places that state that we were all killed by the Texas Rangers, and that's mm. just not true. So yeah, if there's anything else I could say, it's we are not extinct. We are still here. And that was Kiara Enriquez from the Karankawa Codley Nation in Corpus Christi, Texas, speaking on the recent January 22nd action in front of Bank of America, where over 400 community members and allies participated. Bank of America is one of the corporate underwriters for the major oil company Enbridge, which is planning to build a pier in oil export terminal over the eastern portion of a Karankawa village site off Corpus Crispy Bay in Ingleside, Texas. And that concludes the first segment of our show today here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
The song Don't Abuse the Medicine by Girls Rising here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we continue with our ongoing series, Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists. Our guest for today, Madeline Sayet, is from the Mohegan Nation, and for her work as a stage director of new plays, classics, and opera, Madeline has been named a Forbes 30 and Under 30 in Hollywood and Entertainment, a TED Fellow, a MIT Media Lab Directors Fellow, a NCAIED Native American 40 and Under 40, a recipient of the White House Champion of Change Award from President Obama and received the National Director's Fellowship, as well as she is a National Arts Strategies Creative Community Fellow. Madeline is an assistant professor in the English Department at Arizona State University and executive director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Her directing work has been praised by the Wall Street Journal as enchanting and the New York Times admired the transparent and almost weightless fluidity of the world she builds. Her work promoting Native American voices on stage has been featured in National Geographic, Good Magazine, and Mental Floss, to name just a few. In the second segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, our special host for this series, Albert Abbey Ybarra from the Yaqui Nation and executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez, have the honor and pleasure to speak with Madeline Sayet. And now, Sacred Stage, talks with Native playwrights and artists with Madeline Sayet. Thank you uh, for being here. Uh, today we have the fantastic, multi-talented Madeline Sayet. Um, she's a member of the Mohican tribe in Connecticut, and she was raised on her traditional stories, but a fascinating side uh, part of that is she was, I think she was raised on Shakespeare because when I met her, she was all involved in Shakespeare. And uh, that was something new for me because I always wanted to be in Shakespeare. And I had these memories of going to the Shakespeare Old Globe Theater in San Diego where I grew up and, and dreaming that one day I'll be on that Shakespeare stage because I was fascinated by theater from uh, early on as well. So, Madeline, thank you for being here. Uh, you're a director, you're a writer, you're an actress, uh, and you're just this powerhouse that I've I've known for 10 years or more now. Oh and you're the first... You're the first name that I heard when I got to New York. You got to meet Maddie. You got to meet Maddie. So having said all that, why don't you tell us a little about your background and how you got started and the direction that you're going into now? Sure. Um, everybody, I'm Maddie. As Abby said, I'm Mohegan. I'm from Connecticut. And uh, my mom is a medicine woman of my tribe. And my, my great aunt uh, was a medicine woman before her. And so I, I was raised from a very young age with, with this understanding of story medicine, the idea that stories have always been you know, used as a part of our traditional healing practices and that stories have power to do you know, harm or healing depending on how they're used. And, but growing up in Connecticut, um, I didn't know there was native theater. I knew we had our traditional stories, but I didn't know that there were native playwrights. And, and so I, I grew up being involved in, in, in watching Shakespeare and it never occurred to me as, as a kid, you know, reading the plays that the native people wouldn't be in the stories. Um, I always sort of assumed that, you know, when I picture a world that, that our people are included in it. 
And so, so when I, when I went to college, it was the first time where in my, my final year at, at Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, there happened to be a native theater course. And so I took that course and it was, it was completely transformational because suddenly like we were the canon, you know, our stories were centered and the power of that just completely blew my mind. And, you know, that's where I first read um, the plays of, of Bill Yellowrobe and, in the summer after after I took that course, the summer after I graduated, um, my sister forwarded me this email that said, uh, Bill Yellowrobe's looking for volunteers for to be in a play reading of a play of his um, in up in Maine. And and I went and I volunteered to be in this play reading up in Maine. And it was really, really transformational because I got to speak words written by a Native playwright. You know, I got to speak stories that were about Indigenous issues. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't, I genuinely like didn't know that was possible before. I thought that our stories and Western theater just like were separate. I didn't know that there was this place where we could like bring them together and we could use tools from one thing to tell stories that we care about. And and so after that, I went um, I went and I did a master's in art politics and post-colonial theory at NYU, specifically looking at issues of indigenous representation on stage because I wanted to be able to articulate this. And I always joke that it's like most people do a master's and they're like, oh, maybe I used that, maybe I didn't. But like every single thing I was trying to figure out in that class, I actually, you know, used in my work. And as my master's thesis for that, I directed my first show. And suddenly after that, Bill went around and he told everybody I was a director. It's <laughs> crazy because I didn't actually know anything about directing. I directed one show. But uh but it got me involved in the native theater community in New York. And, and there's other other native theater artists I know who um, who also, you know, credit like no one ever told them that there were any native playwrights. And then suddenly they saw a Bill Yellowrow book on a shelf and they were like, wait, what's that? Like something's going on here. And it really it, it, it strikes me in a lot of the work that I do now because of the fact that it's an active erasure. You know, like it's an active erasure that when you go to a bookstore, you don't see native playwrights on the shelves. You see a bunch of Shakespeare. And that's a choice. That's a choice that, you know, this, the government of this country has made to to center some stories and to eliminate others that are our stories were, you know, illegal for for periods of time and that these other stories these these um stories that aren't from here like shakespeare are required in our curriculum is a real is a real problem um in terms of you know not just how it affects overall narratives but how it affects how we see ourselves and what what kind of art we can make and so a lot of my work has been just to try and really um center native stories wherever it is and whatever it is that i'm working on and also when it comes to western classics how do we deconstruct some of the systems within those plays to indigenize them and to think about like how we can we can um, build a bridge that's telling them in a way that's exciting to us and, and including our native stories in in these um, these Western classics when they're put on in production. What kind of impact did uh, you see in the last 10 years, even 15 years, there was no native theater to speak of. Now, there's a few writers on the shelves. But now that you've had this these this all this time under your belt, the education side and the actual production side and doing plays, and directing plays because I think my first uh, time I met you, uh, we you directed us in a sliver of a full moon in Washington D.C. And so like, oh, she's a director. Okay, I gotta pay <laughs> attention to her. So having all this under your belt, where where do you see native theater going today with with your with your, with your experience in the past ten years? Say, yeah, I think it's really exciting. It's really really exciting because like yeah, like ten years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, you know, like I was I was just finishing school, like, you know, and that was the point when I was like, oh, wow, like there there were there were these there were there were there was native theater happening. But like Bill and like Spider Woman, it was like considered 
somewhat avant-garde at the time. Right. You know, it wasn't getting produced in mainstream venues. You had to work to find out about it. It was like, you know, in cool places in New York, but like you weren't going to know hear about it like back on the res that it was happening necessarily. Whereas now there are these regional productions happening in, in major theaters all over the country. And there's more and more productions moving to major venues in New York now. And we've got mainstream representation on TV, you know, that's so different. It, like I was thinking even this last year, you know, with, with Rutherford Falls and Res Dogs, I was thinking, oh, the fact that we get to see comedy on TV, like native comedy on TV, that changes what I'm allowed to do on stage. Because suddenly we can move past like, you know, so much of what's been created has been in response to colonialism has been like, we need to tell, we need to get you to understand this thing that, you know, that, that most people don't understand in response to what's happened to us. We need to share these stories. And it's like, when we get to a place where I'm really excited because, so I run, I'm the executive director of Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. And what's really exciting about that program is I'm constantly working with youth. We have a, we have a special contest for um, native, native writers under 25 and under where they submit a full length play. And what it means is every year when they submit, I get to read all these plays by native writers under 25 and think about oh, what are, what are they excited about? What are they doing, you know? And that's been really powerful to me because I can see how they're taking everything that's come before them and they're building on it. And they're making these like cool, weird, like sci-fi <laughs> futurism. They, they, they're thinking past what I can imagine, you know? And, and they don't feel limited. And the comedy is like so fresh and they don't feel limited by the things that I feel limited by or the things that my mom feel, felt limited by, you know? In telling our stories when we go generations back, and um, and we also have a young a young Native Actors Award for for actors under twenty five as well. Um, and submissions for both are, are still open right now. But it introduces me to more and more young people and to get to see what they they care about. Um, and so when I think about ten years from now, you know, it was it was interesting because the beginning of my career, I was a performer, and the reason I became a director was because I wanted to be able to change the terms of like the worlds we get to exist in. Like I was like, oh, this is pretty. Uh, crappy having to like exist in these spaces that are defined by non-native voices and be only who they say we can be. And then as a director, I was like, oh, I can I can change the rules. I can change the rules of, of the world we get to exist in. And then as a writer, I was like, oh, I can actually like speak more directly to certain things. I can I can I can intervene and I can I can point people in a way that I can't as a director. But the thing that was interesting to me was as a writer recently uh, for my play Where We Belong, which is which is touring, um, which is about my relationship between Shakespeare uh, language, my indigenous language and, and colonialism. And, and the, the Folger Shakespeare Library, they asked me, they said, uh, what do you want people to think when they read this in a hundred years? I thought, my God, I hope no one has to read this in a hundred years. <laughs> like, I hope everything that's in this is completely irrelevant, you know? Because like, if what I'm writing right now is relevant in a hundred years, <laughs> then we're in uh, bad shape. Yeah, this, this, we're, nothing's moving. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, yeah, so what I really think about when I think about 10 years from now is I, I think about like the people who I work with who are younger than me, like Tara Moses, I always like love to collaborate with her because she's not that much younger than me, but she's younger enough that I'm always like, she's just that little bit ahead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and what these youth are doing, I think is really going to blow our minds and go beyond anything that we can imagine. We're speaking with Madeline Sayet from the Mohican tribe. Also, Madeline, why don't you talk about the background you mentioned already, Gladys and Melissa Tongongwagon, Sobel, who are both medicine people within your respective tribe. And you talked about your, um, this word uh, that was mentioned, a Mohegan word, Kutayun Uya Sunagwak. 
if I'm pronoun- probably mispronouncing it, but <laughs> our heart she hit, leads us there. Why don't you talk to us about the challenges that you were transforming Shakespeare in uh, the Tempest, the classic Tempest, into an anti-colonial approach? What were the challenges that you met? So yeah, so um, my mom, Melissa Tanaquidgen Noble, and my great aunt, Gladys Tanaquidgen, are, are both medicine people. Aunt Gladys was really um, a leader in a lot of ways, and and coming from from strong leaders, strong strong women leaders too, right? Um, our tribe was traditionally matriarchal. Really changes the way that I approach leadership um, in general. And and Gladys, she. You know, at Mohegan, there's always this big value of what are you doing for your people? What are you doing for the continuance of your people? But Gladi really um, was able to actually also go and work with, with other tribal nations and do important, important work for them and uh, help them, you know, bring back aspects of their own culture that in the 1920s was, you know, had been really harmed by, by, by the government. So, um, so Gladi's work also led to, to my, my aunt Gladi and my uncle Tom. Uh, they founded the oldest Indian-owned and operated museum in the country, the Tantaquitian Indian Museum. And and that also brought me up with a tradition of um, it's hard to hate someone you know a lot about, was what they used to say when, when they would, you know, train us to, to give tours of the museum. Um, and also that that museum was a very different kind of space than a Western museum, that it was things that had been gifted to Gladys in her, in, you know, in her journeys and her interactions with her nation, things that she'd been told to protect in that space. Um, it was originally actually called Tantaquitian Lodge, you know, because it was a space for for the gathering of spirits, right? Not for a space to be, to be where things are blocked off and separated from you. And so, so I think being raised at home and being raised with people with the traditional knowledge of things really influenced um, all of my work and why it is I do my work and and what it is that we're thinking about and how it is I'm thinking about stories in relationship to my my tribe. But but yeah, so um, in early in my work, actually, it was when I was directing Sliver. Funnily enough, the one that Abby was in. I was uh, I was having the, it was Liverpool Moon, Mary Catherine Nagel's play, Liverpool Moon, which is about the Violence Against Women Act. It it's a really powerful piece for for a lot of reasons, and one of them is it doesn't follow a traditional Western play structure in that the survivors, these powerful women, you know, like Lisa Brunner and, and Billy Joe and and Diane Millich, who who testified to get the Violence Against Women Act passed back in 2013, they um, they retold their stories inside the narrative. And the power of their actual testimony inside the narrative made it a very different thing than a regular play, you know, um, because they were bringing such medicine to to that each time they told it. And and I, I just kept thinking about the Western word for director and how that is not really what I'm doing, you know, in my job. And it, it didn't feel like like I can't go in there and tell people what to do and not do. You know, these are their own stories. This is their own medicine. This is their own lives. And Bill Yellowrub at the time told me, you know, we need to be using the words in our own languages for what it is that we're doing. And so at the time, I went and asked um, Mohegan elder Stephanie Fielding, who was who was our, our main linguist at the time, what our word for, for a director would be. And she said, Katahun um, Oyasunakwak, which translates most closely to our heart. She leads us there. And I'm not exactly, the language has been, um, it's it, it's like a lot of tribal nations, like we're ongoing, ongoing language reclamation project. And so I'm actually not sh- sure that that would be the exact word for that same thing right now but at the time it really opened up the entire way that i could understand my role within this and it was really about that um decentered leadership model you know that like our people offer words like you know there's this like western word that's like you go here and you go there it's like well that's not very community oriented you know it's like um really um 
really reframing something so that it's actually not like that takes the pressure off of me in so many ways. You know, if it's never about like, what am I doing or am I good as a director? No, it's actually about how am I making sure everyone is contributing their best self. That's really the kind of uh, leadership that, that excites me as a model, because I'm, I'm not really so much excited by my ideas as I'm excited by what every single artist I get to work with can bring to something. That's, um, that's what's really powerful to me. And um, in terms of what you were saying before about Shakespeare, you know, it's been a complicated journey for me. Early on, um, the first play I ever directed was a production of The Tempest that centered on this question of what would happen if Caliban could get his language back. And and I'm and the, the idea was about thinking about um, the repatriation of voice and what would, what it would mean to center a different character. And at the time, that was really, really exciting to me because I had only been offered, so much of what I had been offered had been Western stories and I wanted to change them or reclaim them for myself. But now I'm actually a professor with the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at ASU. And there's a there's been a big shift into actually being able to look at pre-modern critical race theory and, you know, like think about the ways in which these plays are problematic, you know, or the ways in which they're not even so much problematic as they are actively racist. Um, and and so now when I'm like talking about these texts, it's like, yes, I always want people to be indigenizing and thinking about what's in them. But I also if there's a sentence that you're like, you know, if we're doing production, this shouldn't be in here. It's only harmful. Just take it out. You know, um, it's not precious. No one no one needs to pretend that, you know, a white man who was writing 400 years ago is inherently good or that he, he, he knows anything about us. You know, that's that's nonsense. And yet it's been it's been told us in schools, you know, for a long time that this, these plays are perfect. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves with Madeline Sayet as part of our ongoing series, Sacred Stage, talks with Native playwrights and artists. And now back to the interview. And yeah, I... I my, the most uh, famous, for some reason, I've ever, ever been was because I, I said we should actually talk about the issues inside the play. I didn't say we should cancel the play. I didn't say we shouldn't do the play. So we should talk about the issues inside the play. And it got turned into conservative clickbait in the UK last fall where they were like, this, this, this Mohegan girl's telling us we have to cancel Shakespeare. And I was like, wait, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I said. Um, I just said we should talk about it, you know, like we should treat it like we do any text, any other story you know, we receive, we talk about it. We say, what's in here? What's it doing? Why is it good? How is it serving the community right now? And I just feel like that's how we should be treating all stories, really thinking about why they're being told now and for whom and with whom and um, what makes them relevant on the land they're being told on as well. Yeah. You mentioned um, uh, a great a great influence for too many people, Bill Yellowrow. And now in many ways uh, with his passing, the new the new influencers are are people like yourself who have, who have gone across the country and even across the pond uh, to to talk about indigenous uh, concepts and stories with within the context of, of Shakespearean you know elements written four hundred years ago. So Bill talked a lot about building community uh, with our stories in our plays, and if we if main stage doesn't want us, then we still have to put on our our shows because that's the medicine, as you mentioned for our communities, for our people. So our stories matter because in, in all the years that I've been working in native theater, inevitably there'll be a tribal member that comes and, and they'll say, those words spark something in my heart. And that's the medicine that happens. That's the healing that we have to uh, deal with after all these centuries of, of colonialism. So talking about community, how do you see the, the native stories affecting uh, native communities across the country? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that what's really exciting right now is is like the 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 spread of of story and of knowing that 
that you can you can tell those stories like seeing more and more because I mean realistically like the way that I see it is there should be multiple native playwrights right in every native nation because like everyone should be able to tell their own stories in that way and that we need to hear the stories of the land you know those stories come from from the people of those places and so I really um really really am excited by 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 but all the forms of storytelling I think that happen right now I think what was interesting in the pandemic was all of the big theaters they shut down the native theater was happening more than ever because native theater never really relied on a lot of resources. You know, people could get together and do a Zoom play or an audio play or record something really, really nimbly. And in some ways, it, it, it was easier to get together. And so and so I, you know, with the Indigenous Performing Arts Program, I hosted like a ton of extra workshops, just like any native any native, native writer who wants to write a play, come, come and join these free workshops online. And getting to see all those different people start to write um, was just so exciting. And I really do think that the change in media representation too, like in, in TV and film, is really gonna be a big part of that because, you know, all these kids with the camera, they can just pick something up and start to make something. So that versatility, it feels very, it feels very Indian. It feels, it feels like native theater, this ability to just tell stories with each other, because I think that what you're saying, what Bill always said is right. It's not about who else it reaches. It's really about like what we're doing by coming together and sharing what we're doing in community. Um, that's really the whole point. And I actually was having a really hard time with the idea of my play where we belong going different places because I was like, those aren't my lands. Why would I be telling that story there? But I was able to create like uh, protocols that go with the piece that like make sure that another native writer is also, you know, their work is showcased whenever I'm there. And also what I realized when I, when I told the story was that all these native folks, they like, they come up to me afterwards and they, they want to, they want to tell me their stories. And I was like, Oh, this is so much cooler than anything I could have expected, you know, because like, I was thinking, why, why do people want to hear me talk about, you know, it's like, it's like, why do people want to hear me talk about this stuff? Like, yeah, it's a story, but I already been through it. You know, how many times can I say the same thing? It seems like so silly to me. But then I was like, oh, wait, a lot of these people have never heard our stories on stage even still. And that happens every time a Native play gets produced. You run into people who are like me who didn't know that we could speak these things on a stage and it changes um, what they think theater can be and then they go home and they start writing you know and then they make the next native play and that that's so exciting to me because i i can't wait until we have anthologies of of native theater that is like you know across all of the tribal nations and you've got like all the tribal nations represented like that's that's going to be something really powerful because that to me is the thing that we're we're still working and that's why I, I hate that it feels like we're still native theater still has to be a fight against colonialism right that it's like we're still trying to like move this this force off of us for so long because they because they were taken so many stories were taken and our right to tell stories was taken um, and they were replaced by other things and so this act of reclamation of our languages of our stories of all the ways we tell story right through song through dance it's it's really, um, it's really got me excited as, as everything is coming back and as all these people are being empowered to really, really imagine what, you know, the generations to come are going to be able to do and be able to tell and be able to remember that maybe we can't even remember right now because all of these, these blockages are opened up. Madeline, you shared with us, you're the director of The Silver of the Full Moon, which is a play about violence against women act. Talk about that for our listeners. 
Um, I was a director of it. I don't want to take any sort of uh, credit for that piece because Mary Catherine had had multiple directors working on it at different times. It's really Mary Catherine's play, but but getting to work on it was a powerful, powerful experience. Mary Catherine's play it um it basically it it tells you it tells you the story of the passing of the Violence Against Women Act and also of um of the women who testified to get that act passed. But it really looks at how you know how the the laws do not protect native women specifically and and how how the government has let that continue to exist and how non-natives take advantage of those systems to perpetuate harm against our women and why why it then leads to you know um our, our women having such high high rates of, of violence against us but it's a really really powerful powerful play and she does an amazing job in all of her work mary catherine of taking history and taking legalese and bringing it to people in a way they can actually understand it because because you know normally if you ever see me referencing a court case it's probably because i was working on a mary catherine play in which it was in i can't take can't take much credit for my ability to um to document legal history, but, but Mary Catherine has a way of, of making sure everyone knows the ramifications of Oliphant, making sure everyone knows that there are these, these instances in which, you know, a decision was made in a courtroom and it affected thousands and thousands and thousands of lives in, in a harmful manner. It, it, you know, it affect, a decision in a courtroom kills people, you know, uh, kills our people. And so I really think it's, it's also an important and powerful point about how, as Native people, stories are our sovereignty. You know, it's not just like, oh, if you want to be in theater, you should tell a story. It's like, no, Mary Catherine is is an attorney. You know, she's a really powerful, powerful attorney who also uses plays, uses storytelling as a way to get people to understand issues that they might not otherwise be able to understand. And so, yes. So the fact that we, uh, you know, a decision can be made that takes away our ability to legally protect our women is insane. And most people, a lot of people, non-natives especially, wouldn't understand that. But suddenly when it's in a Mary Catherine Nagel play, it all becomes a lot clearer. And so it's really important the kind of change that she can make through theater and that, you know, contemporary playwrights can do by making sure our stories get heard. You heard the question earlier, what relevance do you see your play, your, your words in a hundred years? Uh, where do where do you see uh, Maddie's, what, what's your immediate future like? And, and uh, what's your next step? Uh, to have an impact on native theater. Yeah. So, um, so I, so right now I'm in this weird position of this tour starting of my play where we belong, which is my solo performance piece about the journey, my journey across the ocean to pursue a PhD in Shakespeare and how it mirrored the journey of my ancestors, um, Samson Ockham and Mahomet Weonamon, who had to go over there in the 1730s in service of my people. And so, and so that, that piece is taking up a lot of my, my time. So I can't direct as much, but I've still been really excited to be working on new plays and development with amazing, amazing writers like Yura Starbard and, and Tara Moses. I got to do another workshop recently with Mary Catherine Nagel and Suzanne Harjo. And it's just really exciting every time that I get to work with Native playwrights and Native theater artists on, on any project. Um, I've been working on more projects with my my mother lately, actually, um, where we've been we've been co-writing to tell some of the stories of our people. Wow! And that's really, yeah, that's been really powerful because she's. I mean, she's you know she's our medicine woman historian also, and so you know you think about more. I think in these times too, the importance of of you know people who are keepers of knowledge and making sure that that stories are preserved in a in a good way. So 
so I'm thinking a lot about that, I think, as I move forward and and I'm excited. I'm excited by all of the other voices that are out there and finding new ways of supporting them, because that's that's really I think it's it's weird for me now that I'm I'm doing uh, this piece about my own life because it's so vulnerable. But up until now, I've always just been um, working on other people's other people's stories. Um, and so that's what I'm really passionate about is making sure um, all these different stories get told and that we keep creating more and more places for youth to be entering this conversation so that it doesn't just become the same voices, but that more and more. And also also elders. I think it's actually important to to, to, to recognize and point out that they're, the thing that's exciting about my, my mom doing playwriting now to me is that, you know, when she was my age, uh, it, it wouldn't have been accepted the same way. You know, there are people like Bill and like, you know, there were these people who were, who were bang, you know, and Hannay and, and Spider-Woman and all these great people who were banging their head, you know, heads against the wall, banging down the door, making sure that we were heard. But now it's, it's an interesting time not only to welcome in youth, but also to welcome in more elders who couldn't, who couldn't get through that door then and can tell their stories now as well. So that's really exciting to me. The moment of silence is over. And that was Madeline Sayet from the Mohican Nation as part of our ongoing series, Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Kiara Enriquez from the Karankawakadle Nation and Madeline Sayat from the Mohican Nation. A special thank you to Albert Abbey Yabara, our special host for the Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists series. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Girls Rising, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host, Larry Smith. Until next time. For the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.